in between episode 32, the ultimate impact of telehealth, a thought experiment. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. This episode is a little bit of a thought experiment. So hang with me as I bumble my way through it and then hit me up with your comments. The plan is to do another episode in the future where some of you with thoughts share your version of your own thought experiment. Here's the topic the ultimate impact of telehealth in 20 minutes or less. In my version of this thought experiment, I want to do something a little bit different maybe than everybody who seems to be putting up a poll on Twitter right now. I want to look at telehealth as a leading indicator, not as a trend. The goal here is not to inform you of things that you don't already know, because I am entirely confident that much of what I'm going to say right now, the majority of you are already eminently familiar with, probably more familiar with than I am, frankly. So the goal here is to put this information into a context that maybe is new. At least I hope it's new. The goal of that is to hopefully inspire some of you to take action right now with all haste. This whole telehealth thing started in the middle of one of the many conversations I've had lately about what will be the future of telehealth. You have probably had similar chats about the future of telehealth and know what I'm going to say. They all seem to devolve into someone ticking off all of the states who have extended temporary telehealth measures and like the 1,000 telehealth bills pending in state legislatures that might mandate public and private payers cover it. Anyway, in the middle of one of these, let's all study this updated spreadsheet exercises, I started to wonder if we were missing the bigger takeaway. So let me tick through a few background points, which are all pillars in my what's the ultimate impact of telehealth contemplation and the realization that telehealth in and of itself has no impact. What has impact is who is using it and whether their goals are reactionarily, if that's a word, short-term and or short-sighted, or if there's anything that approximates a strategic long game in that mix. All right, so let's dive in. Here's my pillar number one contemplative point. Let's talk about some provider organizations at the organizational slash admin level. In that survey that John Marchica talked about in episode 330, provider organizations said that if telehealth were reimbursed at less than 65% of in-person visits, they would stop offering telehealth. I'm going to disregard the patient perspective right now because apparently whomever it was that was interviewed at these health systems is also disregarding the patient perspective. I would hope that when a provider organization is asked when it plans to get rid of telehealth, that the answer would be, when our patients no longer need it. Okay, so maybe if we're talking right now about some, I don't know, rural hospital that's just scrapping by, that would be one thing. But some of these health systems have a billion dollars tucked away in, and they also took the PPP. But that aside, let's get back to the, if we only get reimbursed 65% or less of, of FFS in-person visits, then we're gonna quit it with the telehealth option for our patients. Forget about the reimbursement percentage. What I find the most striking is the notion that these provider organization leaders think telehealth is optional, something that they can decide to turn off or turn on at their whim. 
If it's in the middle of COVID and telehealth is a way to make money, turn it on. If it's not in the middle of COVID and it behooves us financially to turn it off, we'll turn it off. End of decision-making process. Keep in mind that this whole, well, we might stop offering it soon anyway, attitude has implications like not bothering to make a nice workflow for physicians, which may contribute to doctors and clinicians' lack of enthusiasm with telehealth, which is certainly a thing. It also has patient satisfaction implications, which we'll get to in a sec. But let's remain here on background pillar point number one for a moment more. We're talking about some provider organizations and their whimsical view of telehealth. I mean, I'm not talking about everybody here. I'm specifically talking about some provider organizations with a whimsical view of telehealth. Let me recall what Lisa Trumbull said very succinctly in episode 349. She said that many, not all, but many traditional provider organizations view virtual anything as competition. They view telehealth, especially, you know, advanced primary care with navigation delivered over telehealth or even urgent care over telehealth or telehealth offered by payers or B2C telehealth or B2B2C telehealth, whatever flavor of telehealth. It could be considered by provider organizations as a demand destroyer. That health system CEOs regard telehealth as a threat is incredibly evidenced, frankly, by the steady stream of them clutching pearls about checks, notes, a suspiciously long list of concerns about virtual care that seem to have varying degrees of applicability, and many of which would seem to be fixable if the health system threw their backs into it. It's one of those thou doth protest too much, methinks, situations. The thing is, though, these healthcare execs are panicking for a pretty good reason. Virtual is a head in the bed at the hospital demand destroyer. When it's convenient for patients to get unbiased primary care and or even urgent care, patients don't make their first or maybe even second visit to a health system's high profit service line, wherein too many patients maybe get scheduled and billed for an unnecessary stress test, for example, which by the way, is the impact of any great primary care doctor. Study after study shows that when spend on primary care increases, downstream spend decreases. Not all who don't get a not evidence-based stress test or whatever low value care after a virtual visit somewhere are a victim of a 1990s HMO gatekeeper trotted out like the ghost of Christmas past. In case you missed some of the anti-telehealth diatribes, this is a common refrain. The whole somehow telehealth will mean a resurgence of HMOs. I kind of get the slippery slope. What I do fully understand, though, is that in many of these diatribes, virtual is the scapegoat. It's a lot easier to point fingers at a technology than good primary care doctors. It's also a lot easier to scale primary care virtually. So, threat. Let me sum up pillar number one here. Any slash many traditional provider organizations who either disregard telehealth as, you know, some sort of annoying short-term must-have and or view it as an active threat. The problem for any of these provider organizations is that somebody else is then providing the telehealth. Somebody else is then owning the referral flow or picking off all the profitable service lines. And then the only patients who wind up coming to the health system, you know, the hospital or the cardiologist or the orthopedic surgeon or whatever profitable service line department we're talking about here, the only patients that show up are complex, not profitable patients, which frankly is as it should be. So there's that. That's pillar number one. Let's get into pillar number two. Patients slash consumers, whatever you want to call them. Let's listen to this clip. 
Stacy wants you to tell the story about the urologist. Hi, Stace. Hey, D. Is, is this being recorded? Yep. Okay. My new urologist visited him the first time, and he talked to me, but he stayed on the other side of the room. He wasn't even close to me. And I thought as I left, well, why did I have to come in to meet him? I could have gotten the same information, and he could have gotten the same information from me with a telehealth, a teleconference. We set up another appointment, and it was the same thing. We talked about different issues, issues that were relevant to me, but he, he never touched me. It happened again the third time, and after the third time, I left. Some people say, as a Medicare recipient, that I should look forward to these conferences because it's part of my social life. Well, talking to a urologist from one side of the room to the other is fortunately way down on my need for social contacts. I have many other people that I prefer to talk to and that I don't have to drive 45 minutes to spend 10 minutes with a urologist who never touches me. If I don't have to make a drive of 40 minutes one way to see a doctor, I am perfectly comfortable with using telehealth and would prefer, you know, prefer using telehealth unless it's an office visit that requires some kind of examination. When my knee is all swollen up, it would be rather hard to have a doctor actually ascertain what's going on by just seeing it over telehealth. There's certainly many times when, you know, you need to be there in person, but there's equally as many times when you don't have to be. And if I don't have to drive and I can get the same information via telehealth, I would prefer doing that. Yep, that was my mom and dad. If this is what Medicare patients in their late 70s are thinking, what do you think that millennials and Gen X and younger boomers are thinking? And by millennials and Gen X, at least, what I mean is the commercial lives that make up a so-called favorable payer mix. In a survey conducted by McKinsey, three out of four patients said that they would be interested in using telehealth moving forward. This said, there are plenty of studies coming out that seemingly contradict the notion that patients want to continue to use telehealth. Let me oversimplify their methodology for a moment so that I can make a point. Here's the research study question. Dear patient, what do you think is better care? In person or telehealth? They asked the patient this. Here's another question. What do you like more, hugging your mom in person or texting her a hug emoji? Let me draw a conclusion similar to the conclusion drawn by some of these telehealth studies. 99% of people prefer hugging their moms in person. So let's get rid of texting. Listen to the shows with Nikki King, Ian Tong, Christian Molaster, or Blake McKinney. Link in the show notes. Two full hours of podcasts that add up to pillar number two. If anyone is concerned for reals about meeting the needs of three out of four patients where they're at, you're figuring out right now how to do telehealth. I was talking to John Lynn from Healthcare Scene the other day, and this was like the first thing that he said to me on this topic. Here's the consumerism scenario. Patients might take a day off work and drive across town for an in-person visit to refill meds, prepare for an upcoming visit, review test results, or receive education once, maybe twice. They might also take their business elsewhere at the first opportunity. They might also take their business elsewhere if the VP of finance tries to charge them a facility fee for a telehealth visit. And then upon inquiry about the facility fee on the telehealth visit, the VP of finance tells Kaiser Health News that maybe it was a mistake, but even so, somebody has to pay to keep the lights on at the hospital. Yeah, don't be like that hospital VP. 
who was quoted in Kaiser Health News the other day, link in the show notes. DTC Telehealth starts at $40 a visit. A facility fee can be thousands of dollars. Patients are smart enough to figure this out fast enough. So in sum, pillar number two, patients actually acting like consumers in the digital age, meeting pillar number one's naive provider organizations going full on ostrich mode, coupled with the steady stream of telehealth kvetching. I'm trying to paint a picture of a situation analysis. Hopefully I succeeded. Pillar number three, Walmart just bought a telehealth vendor and is partnering with another one with a goal to improve health equity and navigate patients to selected providers. You also have Amazon with their telehealth adventures. Also Hy-Vee and other grocery stores. Also every Buca plan, Blue Cross United Cigna at Humana, every Buca plan and a bunch of TPAs now offer virtual first plan options and or virtual urgent care, basically through their own telehealth vendor. Also, health plans are becoming aggregators of point solutions, most of which are virtual or have a virtual component. Further, many of these virtual first entities are starting to take on risk and therefore plot very carefully the not virtual care that they will steer patients to. They'll steer to clinically integrated networks. They'll steer to providers who demonstrate an adherence to evidence-based practice guidelines and who eschew low-value care. They will steer to places with no facility fees. Pillar number four, smog level treasure troves of money getting plowed into healthcare right now. And a considerable percentage of that into telethings. Some of these entities I think are great. And a lot of them I do not think are great. Sorry. But just because somebody discovered the RPM billing code does not mean that they discovered the key to improving chronic disease outcomes in this country. Also, I have had conversations with admittedly probably junior members of a few VC slash PE, venture capital, private equity firms who have seemingly not contemplated at any level the impact that their portfolio companies will have on the cost of care in this country. They will talk a good game about their mission to serve vulnerable patient populations. But guys, one out of three Americans has delayed care in this country due to concerns about affordability. You cannot serve vulnerable patient populations without contemplating whether you are adding costs to an industry that already consumes, what, 18% of our GDP? You cannot serve vulnerable patient populations if the Medicare fund runs out of money, hastened by the expense of low-value services. Also, many of these entities haven't done any actual unbiased research to back up their outcomes claims. I say all this in service of my conclusions. Putting all of this together, what does it add up to? It adds up to telehealth being inexorable. It's a done deal. It's not a trend. And what does that mean? It means that for better, for worse, whoever owns the telehealth owns the patient, especially if it's a front door of some kind. So many of these traditional provider organizations who are cooking up these desperate, okay boomer sounding, honestly, rationales for why telehealth should be abandoned and we should go back to normal. We need you guys to put your energy instead into figuring out how to solve for the litany of problems that you have identified that we all should be considering with telehealth. Because meanwhile, all the provider organization frenemies, plans, private equity, tech, and other entrepreneurs, everybody else is picking up the telehealth ball and running away with it. And you know what the goal line is? getting a piece of the $1 trillion hospital slash provider revenue. That's the goal line. So bottom line, if telehealth is a leading indicator, anybody in the care delivery business who isn't right now trying to figure out how to make telehealth work in their core business is going to find themselves, I think, in a very problematic position. And that appears to be a whole lot of traditional provider organizations. I also said core business just now for a reason. 
okay, fine with these health systems standing up venture funds. My fear is that they are standing them up to get a piece of the financial action and not to, in a big, meaningful way, figure out how to adopt these advances into their core business or helping change the culture of their organizations to be more agile and improving workflows and listening to clinicians. You know, all the things that would in fact be required for their core business to adopt tele whatever in a way that is not jarring and frightening and potentially problematic for clinicians and patients alike. Some big and small provider organizations are realizing this already and taking proactive action. Dr. Hugh Sims, he worked on a project too in very broad terms, try to figure out a business model for telespecialists. Aventria just recently ran a very interesting workshop with a group of COE, Center of Excellence specialists who right now see their referrals dropping as patients go elsewhere for care. These specialists see their patients peeling off to virtual and frankly not virtual care settings that are more accessible, cheaper, maybe more concerned about the patient experience. This group of specialists is actively trying to improve their clinical workflow, actively trying to figure out how to direct contract and collaborate with tele-whoever vendors. They are actively evolving their practices. So good on them. When will tele-whatever become an existential problem for laggard traditional provider organizations? This year, next year, five years, 10 years? It will depend on, I think, their brand name recognition and their regional market share, i.e., is the provider organization a monopoly or not a monopoly? Is it a well-known cancer center or is it just some hospital in the burbs? It may also depend on the penetration of value-based care, including bundles and direct contracting. It may also depend on how long this endemic pandemic continues. But if anyone is picking winners or losers in this long game, maybe even a medium game, I would consider their telehealth adoption and or the cogency of their telehealth strategy as a factor in my forecast algorithm. But my biggest point is for those of you who are really good doctors and nurses and PAs and others out there, my fervent hope is that you will get in there and exert your influence to guide this powerful force that is telehealth so that it creates immense good. We need you. We need you to advocate for good technology that works for you and for your patients. Bad technology burns out clinicians. We learned that with EHRs. So for everybody's sake, please make sure what gets built in the coming years, which could be foundational, please make sure that what gets built right now is not bad. And you gotta be in there right now to angle that trajectory. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.